Casper. Looking to throw, looking for Totoro, and it is completely picked off. Right into the hands of Matt Cody. He buries it, he sits down on it, and the celebration starts with 35 seconds to go. That is exactly how Mary Harden Baylor would have written its own finish. We recognized the seriousness of the violations and we self-reported, but we respectfully disagreed with the committee's added penalty. The rules regarding impermissible benefits have some complexities, especially if the same benefits may be available to others outside of athletics. In this case, I misinterpreted the rule. It broke my heart. There's so many kids that are involved in building this program, so many people. And it breaks your heart that I caused this uh, problem. I made a mistake, a bad mistake, and I hold, I hold myself responsible. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. It's UMHB President Randy O'Rear, Crusader coach Pete Fredenberg, and thanks to KCEN News for posting the video of Thursday's news conference at which the NCAA ruling was discussed, the ruling that in addition to the penalties that uh, Mary Harden-Baylor self-imposed uh, back a couple of years ago, that they in addition had to vacate every game that uh, an ineligible player played in 2016 and 2017, and that included the 2016 Division Three National Championship. we got a lot to talk about here on this podcast, so thanks for joining us for podcast number 249, our Friday podcast. I'm Pat Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. And I'm Keith McMillan. It's been this kind of day, Keith. I don't know, man. I usually do not take extra uh, fluid or anything like that of this type as we record a podcast. But what a day, huh? Well, I mean, I imagine for you it's been a day. But it's uh, for the folks in Belton, it's really been what a day. Because I don't think they anticipated... A, uh, a national championship evaporating on a Thursday in October. No, and of course, you know, we uh, were aware that this could happen This uh, when, the, when UMHB self-reported this, of course, a couple of years ago. Here's the thing, right? It's What it comes down to is this. Uh, when Coach Fredenberg allowed a current student-athlete and a prospective student-athlete at that, before this person was even enrolled and then after he was enrolled, when they allowed him to use this car, it is an impermissible benefit. That's something that was uh, afforded to the student-athlete that was not afforded to somebody else uh, as part of the regular university functions. And because of that, that individual student-athlete was ineligible. And then following from that, whenever someone's ineligible, that means that any game that they played in has to be vacated. And that just so happens to include, you know, uh, the things that resulted in the 2016 Division Three Football National Championship. Uh, we can discuss and debate, and I'm sure people will continue to discuss and debate whether the punishment is appropriate. What we can say is that, of course, in the course of this investigation, Mary Hard Baylor did not dispute the facts that was part of what's called this, uh, you know, this process basically where neither uh, the NCA nor the uh, nor the school disputes the facts, and that allows them to go straight to this part where they come up with the sanctions. And the sanctions, of course, are not pretty, and they're not popular uh, in certain parts of the Division Three landscape. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a pretty valid argument to make that the punishment is either excessive or it doesn't fit the crime. Um, it's good that it do- that it doesn't punish the 2019 team or the 2020 team for something that happened in 2016 and 17, but it still felt like from from afar that it, it had already been taken care of in the sense that the school self-reported. Um, the 2018 team had to, to play its first three games without Coach Fredenberg on the sideline. Uh, Fredenberg was suspended for those games, couldn't be around the team or coach the team. And that seemed like, uh, you know, maybe even that was a, a little bit, I don't know if excessive is the right word because um, it was a player who who did play in uh, play a significant role uh, from what we know in, in those games in, in 2016 and 17, but it also was kind of like, you know, do, does the use of a car affect the result of games does the NCAA have to say the rules are the rules, and if we bend the rule for for this um, occurrence that doesn't seem like a very bad occurrence, then we'll I just have to bend all the rules, and then everything will be subject to interpretation. It does open up a, a some unanswerable questions, but I think the bottom line is where you land on on this is a player using a car that um whether it was for 18 months or whether it was a couple of times and it broke down um a, a, it's not like Allen Iverson getting uh use of a Mercedes from the local Mercedes dealer or whatever um or maybe it's the players from from Kentucky basketball that that had similar scandals like that like it's a very it's a very D3 level scandal right to be like a player uh had there's a car around campus that's uh you know kind of the, the local junker and you can go to the coach and ask for it. I don't you know I don't know if that's exactly how it works, but it certainly doesn't seem like we paid a guy under the table to come to to campus. And if we hadn't given this benefit, this player would not have been on the team. And if this player hadn't been on the team, we wouldn't have won the national championship. And 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 this led directly to to what's being um the punishment that's that's uh, being taken. And I, I also think. I'll let you respond first, but I also think it's just a silly punishment. Yeah, I mean, there aren't a lot of punishments in the arsenal when you can't take away scholarships, right? Uh, I'm going to back up a second, though, to something you said a minute ago. When we talked about this back in uh, 2018 or so, you know, we kind of knew that this was what it was about, more or less, right? It was about a car being lent to a student athlete. I think we knew that. I think we said that on a podcast Someone can go back and check in the annals somewhere around the, I don't know, the 190 range. I'm not sure. And and uh, cite exact chapter and verse on this. I think it makes a difference whether it's once or twice or whether it's 18 months. And, and that, uh, in addition to the fact that, uh, and Pete Fredenberg uh, alludes to it in our open, is that, you know, he consulted with somebody or didn't consult with somebody or got advice that he should look into this and then chose not to. I mean, those are just, those are two things that you can't do, especially the latter. In this day and age, not even in this day and age, frankly, if you're employed by an NCAA institution and someone suggests you should look into whether something is permissible, I think it's, I think it's a good idea to look into if, look into if something is permissible. Well, I also think it's relevant to that that Mary Harden Baylor cooperated, that they self-reported 
the violation, whether they were going to get discovered anyway, or whether somebody went to the NCAA and revealed this. And then once confronted with it, Mary Harden Baylor then decided to self-report it. The circumstances of them self-reporting is not necessarily as important as one that they're cooperating throughout the process and thinking that by cooperating, they may be able to get ahead of it and limit the penalty. Certainly that doesn't seem to be the outcome. And I also think there's an effect on what that says for, for cooperation in the future, when you find that you have a violation, say if it's another school uh, and it may not, it doesn't have to be a national championship caliber program, but when they find a violation, what's the benefit for them to to wrote to self-report to cooperate right. if you, you feel like you know you'd almost rather take your chances and not and try to not get caught because the punishment is going to be excessive if you if you do self-report and try to correct it uh your, yourself you know i i think that ha- that has to be whether intended or not i think that's going to be one of the takeaways for for division three teams and coaches is that wow the hammer is going to come down here and and um you know maybe obviously the goal is to just not have violations to begin with but if you do and they're, and they're they're seemingly small things or medium level things you may be inclined to just try to get away with it and sweep them under the rug because uh cooperating there's no benefit to that it right. looks like right there is one other instance in the course of the past couple of years where a championship was vacated by a division 3 team and if you follow our websites closely you'll know that's the Thomas More women's basketball team which uh, vacated a national title as well uh, it was impermissible benefits provided to a student athlete uh, Sydney Moss who ended up being multiple time d3hoops.com player of the year and definitely the star of that team but with Thomas More it was not self reported and with Thomas Moore, they had had a previous violation. So this was a, a repeat offense. Neither of those things are the case here. And so, you know, one of the things, of course, we have uh, not mentioned specifically in the course of this podcast, but is in the headline on D3Football.com, is that Mary Harden-Baylor is appealing this. And you kind of heard President Randy O'Rear reference that in the open. But I think that if something like this comes back if it gets overturned on appeal it will probably be because of those things where you know because uh for thomas moore this exact same thing happened and it's about the same amount of extra benefit about five thousand dollars give or take of extra benefit but thomas moore did not self-report where mary harden baylor did and thomas moore had a previous uh, infraction on its record where mary harden baylor does not and so for them to have yeah the exact same punishment does seem on its face to not be particularly equitable and whether or not it gets repealed you know if it or it does uh, down the line it kind of seems like today the damage has been done uh, this is the type of thing that spreads beyond uh, just folks who listen to our podcast and visit our website you had people talking about it on twitter and making the 2006 subaru jokes uh, across the spectrum um you know, even somebody uh, retweeting, I think it was the, the college football Reddit account where they said, you know, this this a 2006 Subaru has an $1,800 Kelly Blue Book value. And so this is the you know, this is all it takes $1,800 to get your to get a, a title vacated. I think vacating wins and titles, um, things that clearly happened in the past, essentially rewriting history is a silly punishment anyway, because. Um, 
Nobody on Mary Hart and Baylor from that year is giving back their rings or their experiences. No, UW Oshkosh doesn't get to celebrate the championship. And even, even if, you know, retroactively they, they went and said they were the champions, uh, which I suppose they could do. Well, they'd, um, be, they'd, you know, they'd, they'd be wrong to do so, but go on. Right, right. I'm saying so. But, but you know, in theory, you could. It, you don't. Three years later, the kids don't get to experience winning. You don't. Um, they didn't actually win the game on that day. I mean, I think there are so many things that um, that that didn't take place. I guess that that you can't. You just can't rewrite history. And so it, it's a very silly punishment. I think you, you something like this. You you do fines. You take away their. You know ability to recruit or something like that. And you do get into territory when you do something like that uh, of affecting a program going forward Mm -hmm. when you should be punishing the team that, that committed the violation, Uh, you know, less not in this case, they'll have, they'll have most likely the the same coach going forward. But I mean, I could see a case where you punish somebody from a few years ago and, and now you're punishing uh, the current people for something that people that weren't even involved in it or aren't even involved in the program anymore committed. So I do, I mean, I do understand trying to come up with a punishment that actually punishes the, the 2016, 17 teams that were part of the violation. But I also think it's just, a, it doesn't, the only thing it does is embarrass Mary Harden Baylor publicly. It doesn't unwin the championship. It doesn't allow someone else to uh, experience the championship. And I think, as a form, as forms of cheating or break or rule breaking goes, it's very low on the on the, um, the 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 poll there. You know, like I just don't think it's it's there. There are things on game day you could do that would be much worse. Um, there are certainly things that have happened um, to much less fanfare from from other teams in the Stag Bowl and um, other teams across D three that I don't think are really all that terrible um but at the same time it's a rule violation nobody d- disputes that it was a rule violation and uh I, the just the effect of telling somebody to vacate wins that clearly happened on the day they happened uh to me always seems kind of silly we know this is a really good week of games in division three football coming up here in week six so we want to get to those of course that we had to spend you know a good portion of this time talking about this since it is a national championship, even if it was the national championship from three years ago. I'd like to take this time to mention that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by Gotta Have It. The fan foams you can get at GottaHaveItFanFoams.com. Hey, Mary Harden Baylor fans, this is something the NCAA can't take away from you either. There's uh, one of the five teams uh, in Division Three that are currently available is uh, Mary Harden Baylor, UW-Whitewater, Mount Union, East Texas Baptist, Johns Hopkins, and these are like the uh, the three-dimensional version of the fathead for your wall. I know, Keith, I just took your line. What do you want to talk about about uh, about uh, fan foams and got to have it, fanfoams.com? I mean, they're, they're of D3, supported by uh, you know someone who understands the game at this level and, and really... Um, wants to to help this this brand expand and I, I think it's super official and when you're from a d3 school right you're looking for um something that is of high quality that that makes you feel like your experience is just as valid as anyone else's experience at, at any other division and so you know i'd say this is probably like a 
a 2019 Audi of a product and not a 26 uh, Subaru. We are going to beat this thing to death, I'm pretty sure. I intend to make it some form of running gag throughout the entirety of, I don't know, at least the rest of the season on this podcast. Uh, yeah, so I mentioned uh, ETBU, uh, Mount Union, UW-Whitewater, Johns Hopkins, and Mary Harden-Baylor ones are available now. Or if you're a fan of uh, Army or the Naval Academy or the U.S. Air Force Academy as well, you can find all of that information. And if you're a school that's interested in getting one of these done, for your program, you can find information about how to get that started also at gottahaveitfanfoams.com. These officially licensed foam wall signs for your programs. You gotta have it. Our guest on this edition of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is Wheaton head coach Mike Swider. Swider in his 24th year as head coach of the Thunder. Multiple trips to the national quarterfinals and a berth in the national semifinals in 2008. Also, of course, coming off of a big win in the Little Brass Bell game against North Central back on Saturday. Coach, we appreciate your time and thanks for joining us on this edition. You bet, Pat. Great to be with you. I want to start off at the top by mentioning something that I know you're not necessarily all that interested in talking about, but, uh, you know, recently uh, surpassed the 200-win plateau. Uh, there are nine active coaches in Division Three that are at that level, and three of them are in the CCIW kind of coaching fraternity. What's it like being part of that group and then coaching with and or against these guys on a week-in and week-out basis? Well, it's, you know, anytime you can get to 200 wins, it's... it's, it's uh... It's something that is great to, to be a part of. I, I told our Wheaton people here that I don't I don't see myself as somebody that's won 200 games. I see myself as someone who's been here at Wheaton football while Wheaton football's won 200. <laughs> yeah, I'm just sort of the guardian of the program while it's Wheaton football has made that 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 uh, milestone or achieved that milestone. It's it's never done by one guy, but I, I understand the, the 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 question quite well. And and when it comes to you know the other coaches. It it really is the CCRW historically is is just an awesome awesome conference. I've been involved thirty five years in it now, obviously, and twenty four as a head coach. And there have been there have been some great great coaches, obviously, dating way back to Art Keller when I played. <laughs> you know that was back in the the early seventies when I was playing at Wheaton. And then you, of course you had the run with Bob Reed and, yep. and then of course Norm and and the Thorns and and. Uh, you know, and then the, the, the guy there at Elmhurst said a, not a long run, but was pretty pretty stout run too. So, you know, you're you're mentioned in the same breath. It really is an honor. What's it like being, you know, the guy? You come back to your alma mater, and obviously, you like you said, you've been back for 35 years, and you've been the head coach for 24 of them. But uh, there's a, you know, a lot of people at the Division Three football level as head coaches who have kind of become a D3 lifer, have been at their alma mater and have stayed for a long time. Did you anticipate when you came back that this was going to be something you were going to continue to do multiple decades later? Well, initially, I don't think you do, but as time wore on, it was something I could see because it was, I always say this, you, you want to you wanna find a place where you can be the husband and father that you really want to be. You know, I've, I say to our players all the time that worst thing you do is pick a job and then cram your idea of husband and father into it. Uh, the best thing you can do is decide the type of husband, father, family man that you want to be and then find an environment where you can be that person. And Wheaton is is a place I can really do that. Obviously, I played here. I say this all the time. I've, I've spent almost 40 years of my life associated with Wheaton, four as a player and mm-hmm. 
uh, 35 as a coach, and I'm associated with it for eight or nine years as a parent. I, you know, I coach both my sons here. Yeah. And so I've seen Wheaton through the lens of a, of a player. I've seen it through the lens of a coach, and I've seen it through the lens of a dad. And it's uh, it's a special place. It really is. And, and the longer I was here, the more I realized how special it was. You know, I, I experienced it, and then I came back to coach, and I thought, wow, and I'd love to be able to coach my kids here and, and put down roots and, 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 and be a husband and a father in this community. And uh, it's been a blessing to me, and I've never regretted a minute of it. Division three seems kind of uniquely uh, able to lend itself to that kind of work-life balance to allow you to be a member of your family year-round. Oh, you bet. There's no question. And, and it's, it's, it's fun because, you know, I literally, you know, I just live four or five blocks off campus. And, and, and this afternoon, it was a 70-degree day. And I walked home and got a peanut butter sandwich for lunch and walked back. <laughs> you know, so it was able to, you know, get out, clear my mind. It's, you know, it's three or four-minute walk home and grab myself a, a sandwich and a glass of milk and settle down for a second and walk back. And, you know, that's something you can do. And I could my kids grew up, I could run home and watch them run around the playground at the elementary school, or, or if they had something during the day, I could run do it, and, and uh, my wife needed help with something, and and uh, so on and so forth. I, You know, the proximity to the school, the community, um, it, it really allowed me to be who I wanted to be. I, I say this all the time, that, you know, one thing you don't want to fail in in life is failing as a father and fail as a husband, and... I can fail as a coach, and I can still live with that. But I didn't want to fail as a father and a husband. And Wheaton allowed me to to be a be a good one. I don't know if I've been a great one, but I've been a good one. I think. Let me ask, get dive into football specifically for a little bit. Uh, fans and media talk a lot about the the halftime adjustment, right? You go into the locker room and you make these you know, maybe mythical, larger-than-life changes to your game plan, come back out and do something, you know, extraordinary in the second half of of football games that helps you win. Uh, And I have to say, you know, we have seen you guys play really well after halftime against North Central, whether it was this past weekend or, you know, whether halftime is 20 minutes or a day and a half long, you guys have done (laughs) it. What is it like, you know, what is it actually like to go back and, and make those changes and try to implement them for the second half of a game? Well, I think one of the things that's really critical is uh, having developed a staff where you um, have empowered your coaches. You know, if you are limited just to your insight or the insight of one or two people, you really can't, you can't make good decisions. One or two people can't. But if you empower your coaches throughout the week and throughout the year, regardless where they fall on the hierarchy of your coaching staff, and you give them you give them authority and you give them some autonomy and then all of a sudden a crunch time like halftime when you got you know five or six minutes to meet as a staff before you address your team you know nobody's muted you know and everybody realizes if i say something and i'm not going to get shut up i'm not i'm going to get listened to <laughs> and so i really believe that our greatest strength is is our coaches and the confidence that they have that they're going to be heard and that their ideas are legitimate and so literally we just I just go around and I say, listen, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? And and I think when you do that and you don't just limit it to, well, the head coach or two coordinators, I think sometimes some of the, the coaches that in, 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 in on a hierarchy might be a little lower, 
they're seeing seeing things that that are really really important and if they feel confident that they're going to be heard if they feel confident that their uh their word is of value they're going to say it and they're going to say it boldly and they're going to say it knowing that you know what this might help us and i can tell you in all my time here that there have been many times that even young coaches have said things and i might be 30 years older than they are and they'll say something i go you know what it makes sense yeah it really does and uh i think that probably is the best answer to your question that our halftime adjustments aren't mine or maybe a coordinator. They're a group of men who, you know, have we, we've, we've solicited their response and then have come to a conclusion. How do you maintain the, you know, the intensity of a, of a rivalry week like this past week against North Central? Because you guys have done great against North Central, like, you know, for the last four times out and, you know, multiple times before that, but haven't always been able to finish the run and I know it's a tough conference and all that but how do you then kind of get the guys to maintain that type of intensity for the rest of the regular season well that's a that's a great question and it's it's a difficult one sometimes to 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 do you're right because so much energy and emotion is put into that particular game because you know for for a lot of years I mean that's that that game is determined not only the bell and I mean but it's determined a conference title and mm-hmm. potentially a playoff berth but you, 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 you put so much energy into that, and then all of a sudden, you know, you get the bell, and and then you sort of take a little bit of a breath. And what you got to really try to do, I mean, this is the conversation I had with our team Monday, was, okay, we that, that was fun. It really was. It was a homecoming day. It was a national, you know, two nationally ranked teams. It was a D3 game of the week on multiple levels, and yada, yada, yada. I said, but you know what? Now we're playing for a conference championship. And... We're playing to, to win a conference trophy. And so you gotta sort of say, okay, I gotta get off that, you know, that, that route, that, 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 that track and go, okay, I, I gotta get on this track now. And, and I gotta head down this, this path and I gotta beat down this path for a conference title and literally tell your players that, you know, there, there, there's six guys left and you gotta beat them. And it, you, you gotta forget about the bell and forget about North Central and you can enjoy that. You know, when you're an old man someday, but this is this is what we've got to do now, and and uh, we this year really made a point to do that because you're right, we've we've gotten that bell, but have really struggled, you know, in in, in other games uh, following that. Yeah, uh, you guys lost Spencer Peterson on Saturday. Yeah. It looks like for quite some time. Uh, first off, I have to ask, you know, did Mike Shower give you any uh, any trouble because you broke his power forward? <laughs> well, I, I was walking into halftime, and I happened to see him talking to his assistant, and I, I saw Mike's the look on his face, and I knew he had he had heard at that time that you know Spencer had torn his ACL, and uh, and I, I felt terrible. I, you know, you 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 feel terrible for everyone involved, but mostly you feel terrible for the young man. I mean, he's a senior, right. and. You know, I feel bad for Wheaton football. I feel bad for myself. I mean, we lost a great football player. I mean, a great football player. And um, and he lost somebody great, too. So, I mean, the pain that we're experiencing is one thing. But to meet with him and his mother and father after the game was much more painful than the pain that Mike and I were experiencing. And and uh, that's the hard thing. It really is. It's Because that kid's a special athlete. So what do you do to try to replicate what he brought to the game? Obviously, you know, you have 
obviously a, a good amount of offensive firepower without having to use him, but obviously it's different to have the versatility and the extra things that he brings to the game. Oh, no doubt. I mean, he brought something to the offense, even if it was 15 or 20 snaps that was that was different in, in what he could do. And and then he was also, he, he got hurt as our personal protector on our punt, and we had, we, we have a number of, of, of things we can do with him back there. In fact, we... We had some things in line for uh, for North Central and in the second half that we were going to try to do with him, and so it, it, it not only is what he can bring as that wildcat type quarterback, but what he was bringing in the threat that he posed as a personal protector on our punt. And um, but you know you got to move on. I mean it's 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 the reality of life and it's the cold hard facts. And as you said, we have we have some other athletes here, and you you step up and. You know, the worst thing you can do is feel sorry for yourself because, as I tell our players all the time, don't feel sorry for yourself because nobody else does. You know, nobody's feeling sorry for us. They really aren't. And, you know, that that, that emotion is emotion for losers and uh, self-pity. And so you got to get off that pretty quick. Coach, you guys obviously went through some tough times a couple years ago, some negative news, negative press, that sort of thing. You guys, how did you weather that? And you're happy, happy to have all that behind you and have some positive stuff to talk about? Yeah, I mean, that was, um, you know, I've been coaching 40 years, 42 years now. And that, what happened in 2017 was the most difficult thing that ever happened to me or this program. And I think the hardest thing, uh, Pat, was seeing and reading what was out in the news and in the media and being muted uh, based on circumstance and and saying, I know the truth, I know what happened, and, and that's not what is being uh, put out there. And, and, and you're having to live with that. Um, and then seeing those five young men and what it has done to their lives um, – those are five of the finest kids I've ever coached. <laughs> and so, anyhow, uh, but God is sovereign and God is good. And there's purpose in all that happens to us. And he sustained us through it. And we have come out the backside of it, as those five young men have, as stronger men, as a stronger program. Our alumni base is stronger than it's ever been because of that. They knew they played in the program, so they knew the alumni knew, and um, and so we're stronger. We're a stronger football team with a stronger alumni base, and uh, we have weathered that, and we are better for it. Keith, backtracking to what uh, Coach Swider was talking about, uh, uh, you know the the intensity of the rivalry week, and then trying to follow it up, which is something that uh, you know not everybody can manage to do every year. He's dead on about that, too. And one thing that's true is the players know. I mean, the, the phrase in basketball is ball don't lie, and it's sort of sort of similar in football. Like the players, you know which games are your tough games. And I would drill down even one level deeper in that. Like uh, if, if you're a defensive lineman or linebacker and you're facing a team that runs the ball really well, you know this week's going to be a rough week for me. As a DB, I always look forward to the Catholic game and the Guilford game because in the 90s, those were the, the, the two teams when I played for Randolph-Macon that were going to throw the ball all day. We weren't even going to huddle up on defense against Catholic. We were just going to call our defenses through hand signs. It was You know, you just knew that was going to be an intense game. And then you, the next week you play someone else and you're like, eh, you know, it's not going to be the same level of game for you. So I, I, think, I think teams 
know that. Like as players, it's hard to artificially get yourself up for the game. Every week is not the little brass bell game. But when you're on top, and this is what Mountain Union and UW Whitewater and Mary Harden Baylor have mastered that very few programs can master is once you're on top, everybody's in theory going to give you your best shot. And so the first thing you do is this week is just as serious as last week. We're going to play. Uh, we're going to treat this week like it's the national championship or the conference title game or whatever. And the ability for teams to do that is very tough. And, and really, I think the only thing you can do is as a, as a coach, try to set the tone and say, like, look, from now on, every week is the little brass bell game. And it won't be. But at least trying to make that effort and instill that in the players where, like, okay, when you play Milliken, when you play Augustana, when you play North Park, you have to bring that that level of effort. Um, you know, the crowds aren't going to be as full. Uh, you you know as a player, hey, I'm not facing a, a top 10 team on the other side. But you, ha- you have to practice from – really from Sunday or Monday when you're just doing your preparation, when you go back in the weight room, recovery, all that's you have to start from there and take this week seriously because if you dog it through the week and you get to Thursday and then try to ramp it up, you know, you're, you're already really well behind schedule. I, I remember one occurrence um, playing for Macon where, where a coach, uh, the defensive coach, he just brought the defense out. We were playing Bridgewater. Bridgewater was um, bottom of the conference at the time. And uh, he let us do the person in the back has to sprint to the front. So we are, we run around the perimeter of the field and the person in the back has to sprint for the front. And he let us do that for 15 minutes. And he had a conversation with some other person standing in the middle of the field, didn't pay us one bit of mind. But the point was to wear us out a little bit and say, all right, now it's the start of a week. Um, we're not going to, we're not dogging it for Bridgewater week. Like well, this is serious. And I think coach Swider probably has a better method than that but to to talk to them and tell them from jump now that you're on top every week is little brass bell week and like i said it won't it won't feel the same the players know it's it's um not a top 10 team they're facing but they have to they have to take that preparation seriously so they can bring it to game day because you can't just manufacture it on game day you can't manufacture it in the third quarter when you realize oh man we're we're, it's a 21 14 game and maybe we should have practiced harder on tuesday you know you, you really do have to um to bring it from jump. I have to thank Mike Swider for joining us. I also have to thank Rusty Lindsay, who is the assistant sports information director at Wheaton for recording that half of the conversation, which I think was on his iPhone, but that worked out perfectly well. And then I could stitch it together back here in the studio. It's time for our games to watch. And my game to watch is the game I will be watching. Number six, Bethel at number four, St. John's. It's easily the biggest test for either team so far this season. And it's one of three key games that one would think would end up determining the MIAC's automatic bid to the 2019 football playoffs. For the Johnnies, Jackson Erdman has had more success at quarterback since week one when they struggled to beat UW Stout. Erdman threw two picks in that game and hasn't thrown any since. And he was sacked three times in week one, just twice in three games since. J.W. Windsor leads the team with four and a half sacks after transferring from Cal Lutheran and a couple of other schools previously. Their counterparts on the Royals side are Jaron Rosti, listed at 6'4", who averages 221 yards through the air and 68 on the ground, completing 71% of his passes with just one interception. 
Bethel averages three sacks per game, and its defensive backs also tackle well with the top three tacklers coming out of the secondary. It looks like the weather is going to be interesting as well with a bit of actual snow in the forecast. So this should be a fun weekend for football in the upper Midwest, or at least for putting the snow tires on. Keith? Pat, I've got 12th ranked Wesley at number 14 Salisbury. The Route 13 rivalry hasn't been that much of a rivalry as the Wolverines seem to win the close ones and the blowouts. Salisbury last beat Wesley in 2015, and Sherman Wood is 4-16 against the Wolverines in his career. But Wesley isn't as loaded this year as some of those early and mid-2000s teams, and we could be looking at one of the better Salisbury teams under Wood. Both teams started the season with one blowout, but the rest of the wins have been the could-have-gone-either-way variety. So even though each side has an impressive victory, Wesley in four overtimes against DelVal and the Seagulls at home against UW Oshkosh, a statement went on Saturday, and we shoot that team potentially into the top 10 and put it in the NJAC driver's seat with a half a season to go. Now let's send it over to Adam Turr. In another battle of unbeatens, Hendricks travels to Barry for a Southern Athletic Association showdown. The Warriors' Week 2 non-conference win over Texas Lutheran looks even more impressive after the Bulldogs took down then 6th-ranked Harden-Simmons in Week 5. Even better than a transitive victory over a Top 10 team? Knocking off a Top 10 opponent directly. That opportunity presents itself in Week 6, when the Warriors face the Vikings. Barry has never been ranked this high, currently slotting in at number 8 in the country. The Vikings have earned at least a share of the past three SAA titles, advancing to the playoffs and winning their first round game each of the past two seasons. Hendricks has been to the playoffs once in 2015. Both of these programs are fresh, beginning D3 play in 2013. Tony Koncheski has built a formidable contender at Barry. The Vikings are among the winningest programs in D3 with 35 victories since the start of the 2016 season. After four straight winning seasons, the Warriors stumbled to a 2-8 record in 2018. There were four single-digit losses, but the difference was clear. Hendricks missed quarterback Miles Thompson. The 2017 All-South Region first-team quarterback was lost for the season after sustaining an injury in Week 2 of the 2018 season. His return has made all the difference, as he has passed for five touchdowns and rushed for four through four games this year. He will face his biggest test against a Barry defense led by Brandon Palmer and Cullen Carlin that yields just 250 yards and 8.6 points per game. The winner will be the only remaining unbeaten in the SAA at the season's midpoint. Thanks, Adam. And now over to Greg Thomas. It's go time in the Skyac as 15th-ranked Redlands visits Chapman on Saturday. Redlands and Chapman made headlines in Week 3 with nearly simultaneous upsets of ranked Northwest Conference opponents Linfield and Whitworth, and we didn't have to wait long for the two Skyac frontrunners to collide. Regular podcast listeners will already know that Redlands runs a pretty diverse spread offense piloted expertly by senior quarterback Nathan Martinez. Martinez leads the Skyac in passing touchdowns and rarely makes a bad play in this offense, despite the amount of freedom he seems to have with respect to his own run-pass options. We know about the rushing duo of Mason Carvalho and Kai Thompson, and those two continue to share running back duties. But who is Martinez throwing to? He's throwing to just about everybody. His leading target is tight end Blake Roy, but Roy only has 12 receptions on the year. Ten Bulldog players have at least six catches in one of the more equal pass distributions you'll ever see. We've paid a lot of attention to the Redlands offense, but Chapman's offense has been just as good. The Panthers run for over 300 yards per game, top five nationally, and they're also doing it with a multi-pronged approach. Freshman running backs Isaiah Woods and Marco Reyes lead the team in rushing, with quarterback Johnston McIntyre right behind them. This top five rushing offense will get a significant test against Redlands' second-ranked rush defense, a unit that is allowing just 26.5 yards per game on the ground. Chapman will also give Redlands multiple looks at quarterback. McIntyre is obviously the Chapman running threat from the quarterback position, but he does share time pretty equally with Reed Vettel. 
Vettel is Chapman's pocket passer. Look for Chapman to loosen up that Redlands front seven with the different look that Vettel brings to the offense. Both offenses are very good, and so are both of these defenses. Not to be overlooked, Chapman's rush defense is only surrendering 42.7 yards per game on the ground. And for as much attention as Redlands' pass rush gets, Chapman is just as fierce as the Panthers have outsacked Redlands 14-10 despite having played one less game. Chapman's defensive line and linebackers have been just as good, if not better, than the Redlands counterparts at harassing opposing quarterbacks. If there is a big difference between these two defensive units, it is that Redlands has been more adept at taking the ball away. The Bulldogs have 14 turnovers already this season, and they do it by applying maximum pressure and forcing mistakes. Whether it's down in distance or time and score, Redlands has been great at putting opponents into passing downs and then pinning their ears back and forcing quarterbacks to make bad throws. Chapman being able to stay on schedule with the run game and heal that Bulldog pass rush a little bit is going to be a big key to this game. Given Week 3's results, it isn't too early now to say that this game is going to have significant West Region implications. The winner is in control not just for the Skyak Championship, but for the inevitable West Coast Round 1 game in the NCAA Tournament. It should be a fantastic high-stakes game late and under the lights in orange. And we'll finish it up with Frank Rossi. From In the Huddle and D3Football.com, I'm Frank Rossi. The 2019 season for the Misericordia Cougars and the Widener Pride has been a story of ups and downs, but for the Cougars lately, it's been mainly ups at the last minute. Yet, is the four-overtime win over Lebanon Valley two weeks ago, and is the last-minute win last week against Kings anything unusual for Misericordia? No, since the Cougars won four one-possession conference games in 2018. Widener, on the other hand, is looking to bounce back from a 26-point loss last week against Stevenson in an attempt to stay alive in the MAC conference race. With Sean McGahee averaging over 338 yards per game passing, and with him passing for 14 touchdowns against five interceptions, the prize air attack might be able to place enough distance between their team and the Cougars to prevent end-of-game heroics by Misericordia again. The magician has been Misericordia quarterback Brady Williams, whose statistics aren't overwhelming with him averaging 235 yards per game in the air and passing for seven touchdowns. But Williams has engineered several late comebacks in his Misericordia career that have made this 70-year-old program a MAC competitor over the last two years after just five wins in the team's first six seasons. It seems peculiar that the Cougars have been outgamed this season by an average of 43 yards per game, and yet the team is 2-0 in the MAC and 2-1 overall. The Cougars, though, will need to find a way to nullify McGahee's favorite target, James Gillespie, who returned from injury this season and who has averaged a staggering 153 receiving yards per game. He's caught nine of McGahee's 14 touchdowns this season after forming a healthy rapport with first-year head coach Mike Berniak during the offseason. The game is an important one, especially as Misericordia does not face Delaware Valley this season in the conference's round robin. That gives the Cougars a real chance to win at least a share of the MAC crown if they can run the rest of the MAC gauntlet, starting with a Widener Pride team that is in need of a big win. Kickoff at Widener Saturday is at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Now back to two guys who would never let me borrow their car, even a 2006 Subaru, Pat and Keith. All right, it's time for On the Spot, and Keith, your time to put me on the spot first. Well, as you know, On the Spot is when we challenge each other to... Uh, make our weekly picks or come up with some insights uh, without having any prior knowledge of what the other person is going to ask generally is pretty entertaining. I'll give you an option off top. Do you want to play the Roy G. Biv version or do you want to play Taste the Rainbow? Uh, I want to play Taste the Rainbow. All right. I need you to give me winners in all the colors of the rainbow. So that's red, orange, yellow, green, purple, blue, and I'll give you one neutral. 
Um, and or you can use your neutral if you want to pick some weird outfit like Baldwin Wallace or Rowan that wears uh, brown. So give me one. Of, give me a winner in each color plus a neutral. Based on the colors that they wear rather than some sort of color in their name, right? Correct. It doesn't, ha- it doesn't have to be the blue boys or the yellow jackets. However, those tend to, to also be the colors that those teams wear. Very rarely do you see like a Red Hawks that wears green and gold. So, you know, just saying you should be in the clear either way. And obviously the, it's the, the, the color jersey, not the white that they wear. Um, whites are <laughs> home in football? Uh, no, whites are on the road in college football. Well, you know what I appreciate is uh, in the course of that conversation, you've uh, given me some time to start writing some things down. So that's good. I'm very good at stalling. So for uh, I, I might start with just obvious ones, and uh, I apologize if this is too obvious. But for red, I'm going to go with North Central to win. Against? Yeah, they are going to play Augustana. That's important. I should definitely mention that. Thanks for the, uh, thanks for the hint there. Orange is going to be tricky here. Uh, Gettysburg is not playing. Hope's playing Albion. Uh, Knox is playing University of Chicago. Uh, McAllister's playing Lake Forest. I don't love any of those picks to be something I'm going to hang my hat on and go out on a limb on. Uh, Hendricks is on the front page wearing orange. Am I going to pick Hendricks against Barry in something like this? Probably not, so I'm going to go with Hope over Albion for my orange team. For yellow, I'm not sure if the crew are going to wear yellow on Saturday against East Texas Baptist, but I'm going to pick them. So that's my Roy, R-O-Y. G for the green, I'm going to take Brockport to beat Hartwick. I feel uh, particularly uh, useful. Useful? About that? We'll say useful. Let's see now. For uh, purple, uh, St. Thomas is an easy winner over uh, Augsburg. For blue, I'm going to take John Carroll over Capital, and I don't even have to. I haven't even left the top 25 basically, other than the Hope game. So that's uh, that seems a little, uh, I don't know, unimpressive. So for my one extra one, I'm going to take Western Connecticut in the uh, kind of navy blue and the bronze helmets over Massachusetts Maritime Academy. Wow, Western Connecticut over Mass Maritime. That is a little bit impressive. It's but not, nice job. It's not something that we would normally talk too much about on this podcast. So, uh, But I've been, you know, it's obviously many years since I lived near Danbury, but I lived near Danbury for a year and got to see the Colonials play football some Friday night and then, you know, did a Saturday somewhere else, which was, I'm sure, just as interesting. All right, Keith, I told you that Subaru was going to come back in this podcast, and I need you to pick out winners of games that will spell the word Subaru. Now, I'm going to say, that doesn't mean that you have to pick six separate winners, one with S, one with U, et cetera, et cetera. Like, if you wanted to pick Susquehanna and pick out an SU at that point, you could knock off two of the letters with one pick. I say Susquehanna because the entire Centennial Conference is on uh, by this week, so... You're not likely to be picking them. Uh, and then you could have a, a B or a BA or a BAR. You get the idea, right? So you could take it get in as few picks as you want or as many picks as you want. Well, Keith, Subaru. Unfortunately, I'm hard-headed, and I'm probably going to pick all six. All right. But let, we'll see how it goes. Uh, the Susquehanna suggestion was probably great. SUNY Maritime would have been a good, actually. But I'm so excited about these U games that – uh to spill out the whole thing. Uh, I like St. John Fisher, even though they've lost uh, a couple of games. 
uh, lately by three at Ithaca, and they lost to Brockport 17-0 last week following a, a, a 3-0 start. Uh, Utica's 2-2, two two, so this is not an easy win. Um, but uh, but St. John Fisher looked a lot better against Brockport than Utica did last week against Cortland. So I'm going to go St. John Fisher for S as your S in Subaru. Mm-hmm. U I had my U game picked out where to go. Union at Rochester. That's what it was. Uh, Union should be rolling high against, uh, you know, coming off the Hobart win. But exactly what Mike Swider talked about in that uh, in that interview got to keep it up once you beat the team that is the team in your conference and uh for all intents and purposes that that's usually been hobart uh ithaca and rpi will be tough games later in the season for union and of course union and rpi have one of the great rivalries in d3 so they it's no problem to get up for week 11 they got to get up to to play at rochester this week you don't want to come out soft and suddenly find yourself in the second half of a game where you have to to, to grind it out to win i feel good about st john fisher i feel good about Union, and let's leave upstate New York and go to Bridgewater. Now, not only do I personally delight in picking anybody to beat Hampton Sydney, uh, I actually think Bridgewater's good this year, and they and they've flown under the radar a little bit because, um, aside from winning at Stevenson back in Week Two, these wins have been they haven't been game of the week type wins. Forty-one ten Gettysburg thirty. 722 at Stevenson, which was top 25-ish at the time. Uh, they beat Shenandoah 35-17 in Southern Virginia 4-6. They're going to Hampton, Sydney, which admittedly is one of the great places to play in D3. HSC is 1-4 so far this year. I feel like that's a pretty big um, opportunity for a win. Now I need an Aru. I wish we had a like an Aruza Pacific and I could just Wrap this segment up quickly. Aruba, but Jamaica. We do, we, we do not have that. Uh, the MIAA is usually a good place to go for, for some A schools. But I actually am um, going to go down south. Uh, Austin, I think, could bounce back from its uh, bad loss at Trinity this past week. And we didn't, we didn't talk about that one much last week at all. They lost 52-35. Uh, but the week before or the game before is two weeks before Austin beat center. And so I think Austin potentially is a team we take seriously in the SAA this season. Millsaps, by the way, four and one. They also beat center by a similar score game is at Austin. So I'll go out on a limb and, and pick uh, the team with the worst record to beat the team with the better record. Although I think they have a fairly comparable result. How are you? Oh, I do like Redlands. Actually, that that's probably a good one. Um, going back to the preseason, actually, I think I've mentioned this several times on the podcast that I wrote the Sky Act for for the kickoff edition and got a chance to talk to some coaches out of, out of that conference. And uh, I, I think they all liked Pomona Pitzer's offense, and they've been a little disappointing. They liked Claremont Mudscripts, which was the reigning champion, and you tend to to say nice things about the reigning champion in the preseason. But everybody had good things to say about Redlands and especially that defensive line. And uh, Chapman should be a pretty good matchup. I like Redlands in this, even on the road, and and you know, and the Sky Act under the road trips are uh, are even overnight trips, so they're they're fairly uh, short trips, and and I think that defensive line will uh, will make it tough for Chapman to move the ball. Chapman had a lot of success moving the ball against Whitworth in what their signature win has been so far this season, and um, 
Yeah, I, I think that'll be a. Uh, I mean, there's so many good games this week. One more you. I'll let you pick UW schools uh, since we got yeah, two U's here. Excuse me, Your Honor. Two U's. Well, I, the crazy thing is, I don't, I don't particularly love any of those matchups, but I was looking at them. They are uh, UW Stout at Lacrosse. Lacrosse needs to bounce back after uh, that loss to Platteville last week. Uh, Oshkosh Stevens Point, River Falls, and Eau Claire. Don't don't think that's all that exciting. I think you, got, you can pretty much guess who's going to win those. Platteville at Whitewater, though, will be a huge one. I will take Whitewater. I know that's not far out on a limb, um, but I think that score last week is a little misleading. It was 24-14 against UW Eau Claire. Eau Claire was pretty good defensively this season, especially in the win against St. Thomas. So to put up 24, not that uh, unimpressive. Whitewater split carries not quite equally, but but fairly well. It was like 13-9 and 7 between Alex Pete. Uh, Jared Ware and Ronnie Ponick, they all got carries, and uh, Ware actually was the guy who got seven. Pete had 13. So they have a three-headed monster in the backfield. They got Zach Oles back, the quarterback. Um, and uh, offensively, you know, they seem adequate. Defensively, they seem great. White, uh, Eau Claire didn't score its second touchdown that game till like a minute 25 left. So it was essentially a 24-7 game. And uh, I think Platteville is going to be a much different uh, offense in terms of the way they move the ball, uh, they'll you know they'll spread it out. But I, but I think um, you know Whitewater defensively is just a lot of trouble for for anyone. And if they're going to win games this season, they're going to do it with uh, with defense and that that classic style of running game. All right, I got one bonus pick for you before we go out the door. We spelled out Subaru. Now give me a game that's going to be decided by the score of twenty to oh six. Oh, that's funny because I thought it was you were going to say zero to six, and I was going to look for a super. Low scoring game, uh, tw- wow, 20 to six. So, for the 20 to six game, I'll give you William Patterson at Christopher Newport. I wouldn't be shocked if Christopher Newport was the team that scored the 20 in this one, but they've scored six the past couple weeks in uh, both in losses, uh, to Kane and to uh, to at Brevard. So, uh, so six is a possibility again, and honestly. Uh, if I was feeling super frisky, I'd go go see who center is playing. Center has lost uh, their past three games and had given up 20 each time. So they're a good possibility to give up 20, but I think they'll score more than six. So let's go William Patterson at CNU for the 20 to six game. And thanks for putting me on the spot. Of course, we do our spot check as well on the previous week's picks. And last week, Keith was challenged to pick the five closest games of the week from week five. He picked uh, Brockport versus St. John Fisher, which was 17 points. Case and Westminster PA was eight. George Fox and Puget Sound was a one-point game in overtime. St. Thomas versus Concordia Moorhead was 45 points. And Wheaton versus North Central, 14 points. All of those double overtime and overtime games from Saturday should count as the closest ones for sure. Plus, you had Waynesburg beating Teal by one. And three-point games in regulation included Johns Hopkins over Ursinus, Curry over University of New England, and TCNJ over William Patterson. Pat, you were challenged to pick winners in alignment with the spelling of your name. Patrick Coleman, you chose Plymouth State. Averett, Tufts, Redlands, Illinois College, Cal Lutheran, and Kenyon. What do I want? Well, all those ding, 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 ding. You hit all of them. 
you hit the jackpot and the jackpot is a 2006 Subaru. Awesome. I hope it runs. That would be great. Or walks. Walks would be all right also. Rolls. Rolls would be good. Yep, that's the uh, rolling of the ball rolling around the roulette wheel. And it lands on... We land on number 93. We keep getting all the high numbers this year. And you should see how big this roulette wheel is. It, it takes quite a bit to get 105 numbers on there. And how about that? Uh, game 93 is actually Occidental at Whittier. Uh, of course, part of the thing is that we have to come up with a, a rivalry trophy. There already is one for that. But maybe while Keith uh, does the preview of the game, I'll try to come up with a, some sort of alternate rivalry trophy. You sure it's not the shoes? Well, I, I think what's interesting about this one is that it's the first opportunity for Occidental to get on the board against the NCAA D3 team a, a win and to show that the, the program has not gone the way of Grinnell and, and shut down and that it's going to um, survive and, and, and get through. You just now, you, you know, you've seen them play. Uh, their games this season and, and be somewhat competitive, at least in the Willamette game, a 34-31 loss. They haven't beaten a team since they beat Whittier on October 29th, 2016. They have a chance to make it almost uh, less less than three years, winning at Whittier on Saturday. Uh, the Poets are uh, actually have a win in the books against Luther back in week one and uh, played a close game at Lewis and Clark. So I don't think this is a walkover by any means for uh, for either side, for Occidental or Whittier. And I think that's what uh, partially makes it uh, fairly interesting. All right. And so obviously this is a game that is already played for uh, Myron Claxton's shoes uh, between the uh, Tigers and the Poets. I'm going to call this the uh, William Blake Cup. And that is because uh, William Blake is the poet who wrote the poem that starts Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright. And that was your English department moment. Yeah, we come straight out of The More You Know into the one-liners. <laughs> and uh, Keith, will start with East Texas Baptist at top rank Mary Harden Baylor. I wonder if we get an extra special effort from the crew after Thursday's news, although they've won the past two games by a combined 144 to zero. So I'm not sure how much better they can be. ETBU, by the way, is two and two. All right, 19 uh, Platteville at number three, UW-Whitewater. Yeah, probably shouldn't have brought this one up earlier, but the Warhawks were back to their defense and pound the rock formula last week in a win over UW-Eau Claire. Whitewater is allowing fewer than 13 points per game, while Platteville is scoring 43 per game. Washington and Jefferson at 25th-ranked Case Western Reserve. Hey, if not for a seven-point stumble against Carnegie Mellon, we'd be hyping this as a matchup of unbeatens. The Spartans know it'll be a challenge to remain in the top 25 and take control of the pack race against the team that usually is in control of the pack race. Heidelberg at Marietta. Each team started 3-0 before suffering a loss, but the student princes are coming off a bye and have the extra week to prepare. This is basically for a number two in the OAC status. And Dubuque at Central. The Dutch are surprisingly unbeaten, and the Spartans, a lot of Spartans in this podcast, uh, They the Dubuque is surprisingly has three losses already. The points don't matter. That's right, the points don't matter. It's called being a professional. Points don't matter. You play to win the game. And then I give them points. I don't know why, it's just a gag to tie the show together. Now, if you want to crown them, then crown their ass.
And, uh, of course, we also take a look back at Quick Hits. Yeah, we keep score. Uh, Quick Hits is our Friday look at the upcoming set of games, and uh, we try to give you some opinions. Our panel of me, Keith, Adam Turr, Ryan Tips, Frank Rossi, and Greg Thomas, we were tasked this week or last week with the following. Tasked with picking a game of the week that didn't involve a little brass bell, Ryan, Keith, and I picked UW Lacrosse at UW Platteville, which was a fine game. I can't say UW tonight. But it was Frank who homered on the first pitch he saw, picking Hobart at Union. Best pick of the group, certainly better than Adam's pick of Concordia Moorhead at St. Thomas, and Greg's pick, Hope at Trine. Picking a top 25 team to get upset was fairly easy, at least for four of us. Ryan and I picked Trine, while Adam and Frank took UW Lacrosse. All of those were better than Greg's pick of Rowan, which was not the upsetting team, but of course, Wesley. And then Keith's pick of St. Thomas, which we've already addressed. Then about the little brass bell game, we were asked to pick North Central's offense or Wheaton's defense. Keith and I talked about this in pod number 248, but Keith picked Wheaton and was clearly the winner. And we don't usually talk about the game that nobody else is watching, but I have to get props to Adam for picking Carnegie Mellon at Grove City. That game went to double overtime. And then also, Keith, to you for picking Albright at FDU Florham, which was so nice. We talked about it twice on Monday's podcast. Moving on with the Grinnell announcement that it was shutting down football for the fall, we asked which of the six remaining pioneers would get a win last week? Three of us picked Marietta, but special note for Greg, who took UW Platteville, not only got a Pioneers win, but an upset bonus. And finally, we were asked which unbeaten, unranked team would make the strongest case for top 25 votes last week. Adam and Frank took Union, Pat and Ryan took Cortland, and nobody else picked a team which won. See this week's quick hits on the website by noon on Friday. Back to pass, looking in the near corner for Nap, and it's intercepted! Zahar at the goal line, returning it to the 30. Now we're up to our pick six, where Keith tries to pick winners in six games in less time than it took Randall Knapp to throw an interception and uh, Mike Zahar to return it 100 yards for a touchdown in Stag Bowl 31. We're starting with uh, Mount St. Joseph at Manchester. Mount St. Joseph. Brevard at Methodist. They are going... Absolutely. Ooh, uh, Curry at Husson. Ooh, can I go all road teams? Actually, I'll take Husson in this one. Uh, Gustavus Adolphus at Concordia Moorhead. Probably going to snow. Boy. Yeah, boy, after that. Well, Concordia ten, would tend to fare well in the, in the snow, uh, but after last week, you got to pick Gustavus. RPI at Hobart. Man, Hobart looked so good in week one. Uh, RBI. Uh, RBI. RPI stumble. That's actually hard. Uh, I'll take Hobart at home. I mean, they're supposed to get harder as we go. And then Guilford at Ferrum. Ooh, Guilford is not good this year. Um, Ferrum. Yeah, Ferrum. Guilford 1-4, in the ODAC. Ferrum 1-3, And that was the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, number 249, released on October 11th of 2019. Thanks for listening, and keep an eye on all the coverage we'll have on the website this weekend for Week 6 Games. If you like our podcast, there's places you can rate it. I don't know if you knew that, but you know when you listen to your podcast through a specific podcast server, they like to have ratings of podcasts so people know whether it's good or not. We like to think it's pretty good. Hopefully you think it's pretty good. Give us a nice rating. We like that. You can also leave comments for us on the particular episode on the blog page, and we'll answer you or read you or whatever. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football, and Keith is at D3Keith. 
We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation. Not all of it is about Mary Harden Baylor this week, but you can do that by registering a post at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Rusty Lindsay. Our theme music and a lot of the other music used in this podcast is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. Additional audio this week from KCEN News. Thanks to our correspondents, Adam Turr, Greg Thomas, and Frank Rossi, plus our guest, Mike Swider, and sports information directors, Rusty Lindsay and Brett Marhenka, for their time and assistance on this edition of our show. And of course, thank you to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com, and my co-host, Keith McMillan. If people talk about this one going long a little bit, I mean, it was kind of a newsy week. We're only going to be about five minutes over the hour. And uh, yeah, and all I can say is that I have had a particular Beatles song running through my head all afternoon. Can you tell me what it was? Yellow Submarine. That's a terrible guess. It's uh, kind of a terrible song. Hey too. Jude. Hey Jude. <laughs> hey Jude is a good song. It's not a good guess. This is it. My guitar gently weeps. While my walnut and bronze gently weeps. No, it's uh it's Drive My Car by the Beatles off Rubber Soul. Beep, 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 yeah. There'll be a time to uh to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time.